0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 340, Interview with Chris Berman. Author and lecturer Chris Berman is a graduate of Norwich University with an MA in military history and one of the leading experts on women combat pilots of World War II. He has written and lectured on cultural perceptions of warfare, pre-dreadnought battleships, combat on the Eastern Front, specifically cursed and Stalingrad, and other related topics. One of his books is A White Star in a Red Sky, and he has written articles on the Night Witches, the female Soviet pilots who brought misery to the invading German soldiers, the main topic of this episode. Mr. Berman, thank you very much for being with us today
1: oh you're you're quite welcome
0: sure. so let's introduce you to the listeners um what influenced you to become a military historian
1: well i'd already always been interested in uh military technology tactics etc. Mm-hmm. and um in two thousand uh two thousand eight uh, I began uh, writing and publishing military science fiction right. Um, and uh, it was around um, um, a little later. My wife said to me, "You know, you should really think about getting a master's degree in military history." And I said, well, uh, uh, "Okay, that's a supportive so I, wife." <laughs> yeah. So I, I got a I got a degree in military history from Norwich University, which is um, uh, the oldest private uh, military school. It um, wow. began in uh, 18, I think it was 1826. Um, Did not know that. Cool. And what's interesting about that is they offer their MA in military history as an online course. So you could take it online and then you have to go up and spend like uh, two weeks up at the university. Right.
0: I'll talk to my wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's very interesting because you go into the details and the the nuances of, uh, you know, different military campaigns. You study the differences between the Western way of war, the Eastern way of war, right. um, uh, how uh, warfare actually evolved from um, the ancient Greeks and the idea of the citizen soldier uh, that started in Greece, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more than two thousand years ago, right. uh, how that evolved into the into a, an actual professional army that the Romans had, the Roman legions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the, I guess, the world's first professional soldiers. So, uh,
0: so you've taken all of this that you've learned and you've you've woven it into your stories. I'm guessing.
1: Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, when I started uh, when I started my courses in military history, I got a lot of criticism. Uh, on my writing, because they said, "Well, you put in too much prose. You write like a fiction author." And I said, "Well, <laughs> I am a fiction author." and so right. it, it it took it took some work to to sort of whittle things down to become academic, uh, right? You know, academic work. And at the end of uh, the end of the course, the end of your master's course, you of course have to come up with a thesis, mm-hmm. and it's like a PhD thesis, right? And Although it's not quite as it's not quite as thick as a PhD thesis, but it's sure. it, it's close. Right. So I'm doing some research on some different topics. I was thinking first about the Battle of Actinon where uh, uh, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony were defeated by the Romans, and I, it was kind of like an idea, like, well, don't let your girlfriend run the army <laughs> because it's you know it, it doesn't end well. Right. Right. Um. But then I was doing some research from one of the courses on uh, on gender in the military, and I was looking at the records of uh, the women combat pilots of the USSR in World War II. Ah. And I said, "Wow, that's really interesting because there's no data uh, from yeah. other standing militaries of large numbers of you know female combatants." Mm-hmm. And then I noticed some, something really odd that um, the the records of the women bomber pilots were exceptional. Mm-hmm. They were um, they were really good uh, pilots. They had scored uh, multiple multiple uh, hits on enemy targets. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that the women fighter pilots, while you know some of them were pretty competent pilots, none of them had the uh, um, sort of like the success of their male counterparts. And I was wondering, why is that? There's some type of discrepancy there. So that became the basis of the thesis. And it really worked through the whole process of there's a whole difference in combat between the perceptions between a male brain and a female brain. They actually process information differently.
0: Cool, and that and that like, gave the female uh, pilots advantages on the Eastern Front.
1: It gave them it gave them advantages as bomber pilots because oh. uh, women women can multitask under under high levels of stress better than men can. Men, on the other hand, work better in a three dimensional, uh, you know, a very free flowing, free dimensional uh, environment, which right. would be like the fighter pilot. Oh, dogfight. you, would, yeah. You would think that bombers would be in a three-dimensional, um, mm-hmm. you know, envelope. Right. But they're really not. They're con- constrained to a tight formation, and you can't vary that formation. Now you're in a you're in a bomber. Mm-hmm. You're being shot at from the ground. You're going to be attacked by aircraft, fighter aircraft, and you're trying to locate and hit your target. Right. And that's multitasking. Uh, under extreme stress, yeah. and it turned out that the uh, uh, the regiments that were run by uh, uh, the women pilots, bombardiers, and navigators, etc um, were exceptionally good at finding their targets and destroying their targets right um, but there were a couple of very exceptional a couple of very exceptional um, women fighter pilots, one of them was Lydia Litviak, uh, who had scored uh, 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 12 12 victories in three shared, and Katya Budanova, who Mm -hmm. had 11 victories. Both of them were killed in action.
0: So I'm glad you brought that up, because that's why I wanted you to come onto the show, because I have four daughters, and I'm always looking for positive female role models, you know, strength, courage, you know, determination, that kind of thing. And so when I Had read that you uh, wrote about that. I wanted to bring you on. And I'm just trying to imagine for a second, you know, it's um, let's just say it's uh, the fall of 1941. The Germans are coming into the Soviet Union. They're taking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of prisoners. Um, Stalin has got to do something. And I thought it was very wise of him not to ignore literally half of his population. You know, as we're going to go into a little later, the Japanese did very little with their uh, with the, the women of their country. The Americans and the British had limited roles for what they could do. But Stalin, sure. yeah, but Stalin is like, he sees an opportunity here and he is in a desperate situation.
1: Well, yeah, the Red Air Force had lost... I think it was 41 or 4200 aircraft within the first two weeks of the invasion. Oh, Most right. of their aircraft were destroyed on the ground, mm-hmm. and the ones that got into the air—I mean, they had their aircraft at that time was were quite inferior to uh, what the Germans were putting out, which were the me 109s. Right. Uh, the Russians were flying uh, the MiG one, MiG three, and the Po fifteen, which were vastly inferior to the German aircraft, mm-hmm. and their tactics were terrible, too. They were using World War I tactics, oh. which they, they call it the, the Loughberry Circle. The aircraft would kind of group up and form a defensive circle. Well, that might have worked with 100-mile-an-hour fighter planes in World War I, but they certainly didn't work with 350-mile-an-hour Messerschmitts, and they were just right. cut to pieces. Right. So they, they had a shortage of aircraft. And more importantly, they had a shortage of pilots. Mm-hmm. So it was in October 1941 that Marina Raskova, who was um, he was she was sort of like a, uh, uh, a Russian Amelia Earhart. She was decorated for her right. um, experimental flights and long distance flights, et cetera. She went to Stalin and said, look, we have thousands of women pilots mm-hmm. and we should we should utilize them so stalin granted her three regiments the uh, the the 586th which was a fighter regiment mm-hmm. uh the 587th which was a bomber reg- regiment and the 588th which is the night bombers which became known as the night witches right and the women that flew these uh flew in these uh uh these aircraft mm-hmm. these were girls these were 17 18 19 year old women Wow uh, they had uh, um, they had learned to fly uh, in uh, flying clubs etc right uh, Lydia Litviak, who became an exceptional fighter pilot learned to fly at age 15 <laughs> and it turned out she wanted to fly with uh, in the fighter regiment and they, they told her she didn't have enough hours. Um, she would only had fifty hours, so right. she went back. She went back and drew a one in front of the fifty on her flight card, <laughs> and came back to somebody else. She said, "Oh yeah, I have one hundred and fifty hours of flying time."
0: Right. She wanted to help. She wanted to contribute to the war effort.
1: Yeah, exactly. Wow,
0: fifteen. Well, she can only have so many hours because she's fifteen, sixteen years old. I mean, that's just mathematics.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: So, so, um, I'm glad you brought that up because, so not only is, um, you know, uh, Western Russia being gobbled up by the Germans, uh, Stalin needs every, you know, everybody can get all hands on deck. They're dealing with these antiquated planes, but I, I remember something that you wrote, um, during the purges, I think some of the, um, The engineers and and designers of planes, were some of them were killed as well. So you're right. They're dealing with very old planes. Stalin, it's not like he's got a ton of planes to give to these women as well. So, yeah, they're going to develop three regiments, but they're certainly not going to get the cream of the crop when they start to engage the enemy.
1: Well, they did have have one fighter plane at that time that was being developed, the Yak-1. Right. Which could go toe-to-toe with an ME-109. Oh, nice. There weren't a lot of them, right. but um, they, they developed them. They, there was a whole series of them. And by the time the war, by the time they were into, like uh, I think, in 1944, yeah. the Yak 3 could uh, outmaneuver, outfly, and had a higher top speed than, than any of the German fighter aircraft at the time.
0: This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio, with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number 1 financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. I'm I'm guessing the the Soviets did not get credit for building a superior plane, um, because yeah, that, it's kind of the same story with the T-34 tanks. I mean, the, the Germans um, just would not acknowledge how good they were, uh, and I guess it's just a part of national pride, and it doesn't fit the narrative. So, it's good to know that the Soviets had something, but again, for right now, like you said, they have to make up the losses of thousands of planes of the first couple of weeks of Barbarossa.
1: Yeah, and then they, they, they got a lot of aircraft from the West. We uh, oh, supplied the yeah. We supplied the Soviets with um, uh, P-40s, mm-hmm. but we supplied them with 4,800 P-39 Air Cobras. Oh, wow. Okay. And they, the, the, the Russians loved the Air Cobra. It was the perfect aircraft for the, uh, the battlefront that they engaged in, where most of the air battles took place below um, 15,000 feet. Right. Uh, The Cobra was not well liked by uh, U.S. or British flyers because it it did not have a second uh, stage supercharger. Mm -hmm. So once the plane hit 18,000 feet or so, um, it was it was easy meat for, for, particularly for Japanese Zeros.
0: Yeah, so just another element of the technology that is necessary for warfare, like you were mentioning uh, earlier, the evolution of warfare and the equipment and weapons from 2,000 years ago. But going back to the um, Soviet female pilots, uh, their three regiments – I'm 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 hoping that you have some really great stories because I've read a little bit about the night witches but anything that you wanted to share with us about any of those three regiments would be great because I really want people to get a sense of what the Germans, for all their early victories and for all the amazing success that they had and cutting off and surrounding and annihilating armies, when the sun went down, um, whenever the Night Witches get started, I know that things are going to change. And, and these German soldiers had to go through a lot of psychological um, abuse because these ladies were just tormenting them from the skies.
1: Yeah, that the 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 aircraft that they flew was a PO2. It was a it actually looked like a relic from the First World War. It was a, a cloth and wood biplane. Right. It had a top speed of about 95 miles an hour. Wow. But it carried a um, a decent decent load of uh, of bombs under the wings. Mm-hmm. And the, the the thing about the plane is they would take off from grass fields that were fairly close to the, uh, the battlefront. Right. Uh, they would locate their target, shut their engines off and glide in over the target. Cause I mean, these were, were slow flying, right. uh, biplanes with big wings that made excellent gliders. So they would glide in over the, over the tar- targets silently, right. drop their bombs and then fire up their engines and get out of there.
0: Oh my, the courage, <laughs> the courage involved in, and one, turning off your engine, two, after you drop your bombs, uh, and you start up your engines, you know, the Germans are going to be shooting at you from the ground with their impressive Yeah, weapon. absolutely. Oh my God.
1: That's yeah, incredible. they had a, uh, the, uh, the 588th, which was the 588th regiment was elevated to the 46th guards regiment, which meant that they became, um. They were elevated in terms of prestige within the Red Air Force, right? Um, but the, but uh, of their pilots, uh, they lost one out of every three pilots. Oh wow!
0: So there were, I mean, so for all their bravery, courage, and dedication, they did suffer high losses because of coming so close to the enemy units.
1: Yeah, and then and then the Germans started putting up uh, Me one hundred and ten night fighters oh. to uh, uh, to try to take them out. Um, uh, One of the pilots uh, being chased by Messerschmitt actually made the plane fly into a building because she brought the plane right down uh, maybe 10 feet over uh, a street in a little town. Mm -hmm. And the uh, ME-110 is trying to chase her down and flies right into a building. And that's the end of him.
0: Right. That's incredible. So literally using what they have. To to the best of their ability,
1: because yeah, the slow yeah, the slow ahead. speed and and maneuverability actually became an advantage when they were being chased by you know high powered uh, fighter aircraft. Oh my goodness!
0: Because and I think you said this a couple of minutes ago. I mean, this is a wooden frame with canvas, a hundred fifteen uh, horsepower five cylinder engine. I mean, it's not it doesn't have a lot to recommend itself. But if you you know anything can be used as a weapon if you figure out how to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they, it even had advantages where um, planes that were all metal or aluminum wing, et cetera, if they had gotten hit with some of the uh, anti-aircraft fire, right. uh, it would have taken out the aircraft. In In the case of the uh, PO2, a lot of those shells just passed harmlessly through the canvas wings.
0: Oh, yeah. What does it matter? It's just a hole in the canvas as long as the engine is fine. or right. That's that's incredible. Now I did. I was staggered by um, the number of mis- missions. Uh, can you t- tell us? I mean, like you were saying, the uh, the ladies of the five eighty eighth, they didn't fly just a few. I mean, obviously the Germans, you know, three million Germans and uh, and their allies coming into Russia. These ladies had to fly a lot of missions to try to stem that tide of the of the invasion.
1: Yeah, well, with the Red Air Force, it was different than like the Allied air forces. You know, like for the American bombers, they'd run twenty missions and then you'd be rotated out of there. Right. In uh, in the USSR, um, you flew your missions until you were either killed or the war was over. Oh because
0: they, it's it's a matter of necessity. It's yeah, you know, life or death, I guess.
1: Yeah, some of those women flew eight hundred missions.
0: I. I cannot comprehend, do they lose count at some point? I'm sure someone's keeping a record, but how numb would you be after the 700th mission? I mean, you've and every night, I guess you're assuming, yeah, tonight could be the night that I die. And you go in. Anyway. Yeah,
1: and, and sometimes, well, particularly uh, when they had good dark cover, Right. Um, sometimes they flew 18, sort- one pilot would fly 18 sorties in a night her and oh her navigator right so they
0: would bomb go back get more bombs go back go Is... back
1: again drop more bombs exactly they were just like you know it was kind of like a an assembly line of bombing the germans <laughs> oh my goodness oh um and yeah please it had yeah it had terrible uh psychological effect on the german troops because right. you know they couldn't relax they couldn't sleep you know every every 20 30 minutes You know, these silent aircraft would be coming over their positions and dropping bombs on them.
0: If I could just stop you for a second, I'm just trying to imagine being a German soldier. And it's not like you can listen out for the plane because, like you said, they cut their engines and they've or maybe you hear the planes and then the engine noise fades away. I mean, how devastating would it be to have a bomb dropped near you with practically no warning? I mean, yeah, I imagine their nights were absolutely horrific because of the night witches. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, if you have any other stories about any of the Soviet pilots, please feel free to share. But I, I did want to ask you if you can compare their experiences with the women in the United States or Great Britain. Uh, what did you find as far as differences there?
1: Well, our pilots, our women pilots, we had we started with the uh, uh, women's auxiliary ferrying service, which right. were um, uh, young women that would fly with. You know, they were obviously capable flyers. Mm-hmm. Um, they would take the aircraft from the factories and fly them to forward bases where, um, you know, pilots would then pick them up and then right. uh, fly them to uh, combat areas. Mm-hmm. And we had we had a lot of very competent women pilots. We lost, I, th- I believe it was 36 of them during the war, but those were to mechanical failure, weather conditions, et right. Right. Um, the British also had a similar service uh, where they uh, had women pilots delivering Spitfires and Hurricanes to forward bases.
0: Uh, so – so, and I'm assuming in America and the UK there was probably flying clubs as well. So when the war starts, you've got women who've got a flying experience. But I guess – now, for for America, it makes sense. It's not like we're being invaded and we're on the edge and we have to have everybody pitch in. So for whatever reason, America, uh, the government decides to keep women as ferry pilots. Uh, mm-hmm. U- UK, it's a little more intense with the Battle of Britain, but I guess they just for whatever reason decide you can help us, but it will only be so close to the front.
1: Right, it's it. it, it uh, they did also use women pilots for uh, spotting U boats. Oh, that's right. Right. And but I, not actually in combat roles.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And I guess that was just uh, a decision of the uh, the powers that be at the time. I did find out because when I heard when I read that, I wanted to um, find out more about what maybe German uh, Germany or Japan did. And and uh, please add on to this, if you if you have any information, I do know sure. that in the empire of Japan, say from 1937 to 1943, uh, the most that Japanese women were willing uh, were able to do were allowed to do was volunteer associations. But once a, a woman was married, that was kind of a, it, she was expected to stay home and, and to you know, take care of the house or the farm or whatever. But by mm-hmm. 1943, Japanese women were actually working in factories, obviously out of necessity. But again, right. once you're married and you're a certain age, um, you're removed from that. So a very different picture over there.
1: Although at the at the very end before uh Japanese the before the Japanese surrender, mm-hmm. um, the Emperor had commanded everyone, women, uh, children, oh, old men right. to pick up weapons and to fight to the death uh for, you know, the an allied invasion. And that's why at that time we kind of estimated like if we did a seaborne invasion of the Japanese islands? Mm-hmm. We would probably lose about two million men.
0: Wow, and and which is probably contributed to the um, the idea of dropping the bomb because to lose that many men, because uh, I think total America lost around was it around five hundred thousand troops altogether? Yeah,
1: about six. 600? Yeah, about uh, yeah. actually a little less than that. Okay, I, I think it was around three hundred eighty thousand. Okay. And you compare that to Soviet losses, which were sure. you know fifteen to twenty million. Right. Oh my goodness. So
0: yeah, and and in Germany, I think what factory work uh, might have been the extent, uh, but I, I'm certainly not an expert on that.
1: Yeah. Now, as far as I, as far as I know, the Germans had limited use of uh, of women pilots, although they did have their. Uh, one of their aeronautical researchers, mm-hmm. uh, Hannah Reich, right. uh, was, was instrumental in developing uh, jet aircraft and also the, uh, uh, the V-1 uh, rocket bomb.
0: Right. So so let's let's kind of zoom out for a second. So we've been talking about the uh, the the various female pilots of the countries. But like you were saying a couple of minutes ago, when it comes to the Soviet pilots, besides maybe the phrase night witches, there's not a lot that's that that's known. Like you were saying earlier, um, why do you think that is that this is a very fascinating topic and yet it's not maybe as prevalent or as um, known as it should be?
1: Well, it's kind of like, you know, not made by us. Um, right. It, it, right. It, it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of history uh, talks about D-Day as being, you know, the crucial battle of the, uh, or the tur- turning of the tide against the Germans. Right. It was actually the Battle of Kursk in uh, July of 1943 that broke the back of uh, uh, the German army. Mm-hmm. And from that time on, uh, they kept being pushed back further and further, first through Poland and then all the way back into um, into Germany. Right. You know, but of course they're being squeezed from two sides. It's it becomes a two front war, mm-hmm. which um, you know military tacticians say you you should never fight a two front war because yeah. you're you know you're 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 in deep trouble. Yes. I mean we did in the United States, but we were fortunate to be separated by the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, so okay. we never actually had any—we um, never had bombers flying over our industrial complex and, and, and taking out our production capabilities.
0: Yeah, we had the two greatest moats
1: uh, on the planet. <laughs> the yeah, exactly. Oh, um, b- go ahead, But please. you wanted me to mention something interesting about one of the other pilots. Yes, please. Uh, Lydia Litviak. Um, had actually, uh, there was a story that she had shot down in the Battle of Stalingrad. She had shot down a German ace, right? And he was captured uh, by Soviet forces. Oh wow! And he 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 wanted to know, he, you know, because he had over forty victories, and he was he wanted to know who was the man who was good enough to shoot me down. <laughs> I want to meet this. I want to meet this pilot.
0: Shake his hand.
1: And, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was kind of an inside joke. With the Soviets, so yeah, okay, we'll let you meet the pilot. So, um, so this this little, you know, nineteen-year-old girl, right. uh, she stood about five foot two and weighed about hundred and ten pounds. She came in, you know, and you yeah. know to tell him she she shot you down, yeah. Yeah. and he he just would not believe it until she described the air battle to him, right. you know, in detail, all his maneuvers and her maneuvers she's,
0: yeah, I shot you down. Ooh, so much for machoism. And uh, I, I would have given anything to have been a fly on the wall uh, at that moment. That's incredible. Oh, if I could real quick, you mentioned D-Day. And I did not know this until I was getting ready to talk to you. Um, I didn't realize that Martha Gellhorn, who was an American journalist, novelist, and travel writer, she actually went ashore uh, uh, on D-Day. Let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, so it, she wanted to witness the Normandy landings and she hid mm-hmm. in a hospital ship in the bathroom and she pretended to be a stretcher bearer to gain access to the beach. So she was the only woman to land at Normandy on D-Day and I just thought that was incredible. Of course, after that, soon, uh, uh, the following year, she's going to be one of the first to go into the Dachau concentration camp. So at one sure. moment, it's an incredible high for her and then the next moment, she's seen the absolute worst that humans can do to each other.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jeez.
0: So we, we've kind of talked about the pilots um, from the various countries, but I wanted to switch gears, if I could, a little bit. Um, earlier you mentioned some of the uh, cultural perceptions of warfare, and uh, I've got to ask, how does that differ from the various countries that were involved in World War II?
1: Well, this wasn't, some, uh, this wasn't actually um well it does it it does have a tendency uh you do have a tendency to see that in the in the conflict between the united States and our allies and the japanese mm-hmm. um the Japanese took on all the accoutrements of a western military right. um, they built aircraft carriers uh aircraft they built a first rate um Uh, military machine Mm -hmm. but their internal philosophy their war fighting philosophy was still mired in uh, in in older uh, different uh, you want to say different more eastern cultural um, perceptions Mm -hmm. like the entire idea we we're appalled by the idea of a japanese uh, we call them a sneak attack like at pearl harbor right but that's it that was a Particular ambush tactic mm-hmm. was considered. That's a that's a normal tactic. It's valid. Um, yeah. The the reason the Japanese even even went that route is they they basically were repeating what they did in 1908. The Japanese uh, did a preemptive strike against the Russian fleet in Port Arthur mm-hmm. in the uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And destroyed their ships in uh, while they were at anchor, right? Which drew out the which drew out the entire Russian fleet uh, into the Battle of Tsushima, and they sunk the entire Russian fleet except for two two ships. Right. And they said, well, you know, if it worked in 1908, it should work now. So we we attack the ships in Pearl Harbor, we mm-hmm. draw out the uh, uh, the American fleet at Midway, and we destroy it, but it. <laughs>
0: Didn't turn out that way. I, I guess that does um, run counter to the, and I'm not saying that it's superior, but to the Western notion of fair fighting, honor. You know, being um, everybody's given a proper warning. Um, because if it's going to come down to war, I guess the Japanese were thinking victory is the most important thing. Don't don't bother me with the niceties, and I and I can. So I respect that. In one of my series, I'm I'm covering um, Pappy Boynton from Baba Black Sheep. And when he first goes to Burma with the, with the other American fighters, the AVG, um, the British find out what Chenault wants, wants to do. He wants them to go up higher than the Japanese, dive down, shoot, go up mm-hmm. again. You know, don't don't engage them because their planes are better than yours. so And they've got years of experience. So if you just try to do a normal dogfight, you will die. So Chenault comes up with this idea. And when the British, some of the British um, flyers hear about this, well, they, they don't like that very much because it's ungentlemanly. But again, this is a, another example of where, where um, defeat equals death. And so you do what you have to do. And I guess that was the Japanese attitude or point of view.
1: Well, yeah, I, I I suppose so too. But I mean, when you look at differences in cultural perception of warfare, right? The, one of the biggest uh, the biggest examples of that um, was uh, the defeat of the Spanish Armada in uh, in uh, 1588. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spanish had this um, idea of their ships were the they were you almost want to call them floating castles. Right. And the idea was these huge galleons would uh, close in for battle. The ships would grapple and then the, uh, uh, the combatants on the ships would fight each other, you know, with swords and spears and crossbows, like it, like it was a land battle. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the British at that time, developed their ships completely different philosophy. Mm. They were low to the waterline, they were fast, uh, and they were lined with, with a cannon of all the same caliber. And so when the Spanish come in to close for this sort of like land battle at the sea, right. the British stand off at a distance and just pummel them with cannon fire. Right, And the and the Spanish are appalled. They're they're yelling off their ships. <laughs> what are you doing? You're cowards. You're women. Right. Uh, you should come here and fight us like men. Oh my goodness! And they're just slaughtering them with with uh, chain shot and yeah. uh, canister shot and and solid shot. And it was just it was a it it was a completely different cultural perception between the two combatant navies.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of something you said a little earlier. You know, the, you constantly change how you fight. You find better ways. Like the uh, the the Soviet female pilots were using the very thing that you would think would be a weakness in their planes, the slow speed, to an advantage. And and the and how you fight is constantly changing. Uh, that reminds me of you know the beginning of uh, World War II, a, a lot of people in the Navy still thought the battleship was the end all be all of how you win. But certainly by the time it's all over with, it's it's the care that matter and battleships are nothing more than protection uh, for those carriers because they could do so much more damage uh, Yes yeah, so so warfare like everything else I guess constantly evolves.
1: Yeah exactly Wow. You know, it was like when the uh, when the European knights went up against the Mongols in the twelve forties. Right. They they expected the Mongols to fight them the way knights would fight other knights, and that's not what they did. They rode in on on uh, these horses. They were little horses. They were. lightly armored, mm-hmm. and they just rained arrows down on the, uh, the European knights. Right. And when the, when the European knights went out to fight them in the field, they surrounded them and killed them all wow. uh, without, uh, without any challenge of battle or anything like that. So, you know, yeah. it was a, com- a completely different philosophy of, of warfare. Right. I,
0: I, I don't mean to make too light of it, but yeah, like you were saying a couple of minutes ago, you can't really complain, hey, you're not killing me the proper way. Do it the right way. I mean, victory is victory, whether it's the British ships or the or the arrows, arrow, you know, guys on horseback um, shooting arrows, whatever works at the end of the day is what really matters.
1: Yeah, we did that in the American Revolution. The British came marching in in battle squares wearing these red uniforms. (laughs) Right. And and our guys are hiding behind stone walls. They're up in trees. They're wearing brown uh, buckskins that camouflage them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the British approach, uh, there's no forming up of armies facing each other. They just start shooting at them.
0: Oh, my goodness. Very ungentlemanly.
1: Yeah, well that's what the British thought. This is this is you're you're not you're not fighting us the proper way. Right. Things things change. Oh
0: um, yeah, so Chris, it's been great having you on the show, and I really do appreciate the insights into the, uh, into the Soviet pilots because that was a lot more than I had read, so I appreciate it. But before I let you go, I wanted to kind of circle back to your knowledge of military history and your writing as well. So I imagine right. you take a lot of what you have learned over the years and you incorporate that uh, into your writing to make, even though it's fiction, it makes it that much more enjoyable, knowledgeable, and realistic.
1: Yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. My sure. new book, um, which was just released, uh, is uh, it's titled A White Star in a Red Sky. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting story. It's about an American WAFs pilot right. uh, who's bringing uh, Lendley's P-39s to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd found out earlier that her brother, younger brother in North Africa, had been executed by the uh, by the SS wow. when they tried to surrender. Mm-hmm. And she wants more than anything to fly combat. And right. at, at the base, the Russians come to pick up the aircraft. Mm-hmm. And one of their pilots is a young woman pilot. She's also their translator. Right. They strike up a friendship together. And um, uh, through a series of events that happens, uh, she winds up taking the ninth plane uh, into Russia oh. with, uh, with the help of her, her friend and she flies in the Battle of Kursk
0: so she gets to fulfill her desire for revenge
1: yeah Unlike and she, she and she's an exceptional she's an exceptional pilot too, and between the two of them they 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 shoot down a lot of germans <laughs> they uh, uh, they both survive being shot down themselves they go through a, a an extensive uh, travel through through uh, the battlefield and, right. and come across an unexpected ally that, uh, that uh, be, turns out to be very helpful to them, a, a deserting German soldier.
0: Uh, yeah, I wanted to let you know that I was looking through your website and your list of books, so when uh, the holidays comes up and things kind of slow down, I'm looking forward to reading A White Star in a Red Sky and... Ace of Aces, because I really loved that concept. So those would be two that I'm checking out.
1: Okay, well, uh, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on your, your show. And, Absolutely. And, and as far as White Star and a Red Sky, it's available now on, uh, on Amazon and other venues.
0: I'm glad you said that because that was my next question. Chris Berman, thank you very much for being on. And I uh, hope the rest of your day is great.
1: Thank you.